You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where if you sync this podcast up to the Wizard of Oz, the Wicked Witch of the West will die right when Eclipso first reveals himself. And welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio site. Hello, everyone. My name's Sean Ingle, and it's my job on the show, which is a Green Lantern podcast, to bring you coverage of, obviously, the Green Lantern comics, starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite Green Lanterns of all time. And you would think that I'd be really excited about this episode because both Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner have significant roles in this in the books that we're going to be covering. Unfortunately, one of the books that we're going to be covering is an annual, and as you know, a lot of times annuals can be hit and miss. This is one of those times that it's the latter. This time out, we're going to be covering Green Lantern Annual Number One from 1992 which was a part of the Eclipso, the Darkness Within crossover event for that year. Yes, all the major titles had a crossover event with Eclipso, the moon-based villain who could be taken down by a sun gun. No, not a stun gun, a sun gun. A gun that emitted solar rays. So basically, he's like a really crappy vampire. And... Don't let me bury the lead on this, but I'm not going to be too, well, too polite with the Green Lantern annual. It does have Gerard Jones writing it, so that's nice that we get to back, go back and look at some of Gerard Jones stuff. But other than that, not too much good to say about it. However, I will have a lot of good things to say about the Green Lantern book we'll be covering, Green Lantern number 112. It's the final issue, well, not really the final issue, but the final issue dealing with Jenny as a Green Lantern. Spoilers, Jenny somehow loses the ring, 
And it's all because of Green Lantern villain Fatality, probably one of the best Green Lantern villains that's been introduced in the uh, Ron Mars era. Kyle's back. He's here to help out his friends of Jon Stewart, Marin, and Jade, saving him from Fatality, the Green Lantern hunter. And in the end, things basically get brought back to the uh, entire idea of Kyle being the only Green Lantern. It's kind of upsetting, especially after, in the last couple of issues, we covered the new core, which I thought was a really good idea of inserting more Green Lanterns into the DC Universe at the time, but I guess they had to wait until Jeff Johns came back to, or came into the book to start doing that, so there you go. However, it's written by Ron Mars, and it's got Ron Lim on the art, so we've got the old team from Green Lantern, Unholy, Green Lantern Silver Surfer Unholy Alliances coming back to do the comics, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to playing a few promos and reading some of your guys' emails, so... As soon as we take this promo break, we'll be getting back with emails and then our review of Green Lantern number 112. Coming soon on Two True Freaks. Beware the beast man. A month-long celebration. For he is the devil's pawn. Of one of the greatest science fiction series. Alone among God's primates. Of all time. He kills for sport, or lust, or greed. Covering all the films. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. All the comic books. Shun him. The toys. Drive him back into his jungle lair. The entire phenomenon that was. For he is the harbinger of death. The Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. A month-long event. Coming soon. Only at twotruefreaks.com Holy nightmare! So we all know who Robin is, right? Short pants... Bad, holy insert object gear jokes. Kind of weird relationship with an older man who dresses like a bat. I know, right? So not what Batman needs. Thing is, if that's your impression of Robin, then you don't know Robin. I'm Tom Panneries, and for most of my comic collecting career, I've been a Teen Titans fan. Moreover, I've been a huge fan of Robin and Nightwing. So I've decided to take a look at those who have worn the costume in a podcast miniseries called Taking Flight. Taking Flight focuses on the life and career of Dick Grayson as he evolved from Boy Wonder to Nightwing. I'll take a look at his origin story, his time with the Teen Titans, and his evolution into Nightwing. Along the way, I'll also look at Jason Todd and Tim Drake, stopping right after Zero Hour when Dick left the Titans behind. Episodes will come out just about every week at takingflight.podomatic.com, and you can find show notes at popcultureaffidavit.com. Join me as I take a look at Comic Dumb's most famous sidekick, who is a vital part of Batman's mythos. And we are once again back. Well, 
I'm once again back, and I'm here to do the things I haven't done in a while, which I'm glad to get back to, reading some of your emails. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and we start out with a missive from one of my friends on Facebook. Yes, I have joined Facebook, if you didn't know that. Um, I'm on there, surprisingly. Yeah. Anyway, it's one of my friends from Facebook, Zeb Oswald, and he writes in with the title, Cool Podcast, Mr. Anthrax. <laughs> Zeb, you don't have to call me Mr. Anthrax. They call my dad Mr. Anthrax. You can call me Sean. Anyway, his letter goes, Hi, Sean. This is Zeb Oswald. Cool podcast, as always. I decided to finally get around to sending feedback about the show. I like the show. I've been a fan of Guy Gardner for years, so it's pretty awesome to find a podcast about him. Oh, yeah, and Kyle Rayner, too. I remember having the GL action figure as a kid, the one from the Superpowers line. That was a good lineup. I didn't get the Guy Gardner. I didn't get Guy Gardner till years later when I picked it up in JLI. Then I got the back issues of his Origins and Secret Origins. I liked his comic. I even got the mini, and even picked up the Jeff Johns trade paperback of How Coming Back because Guy would be in it. As for Kyle, he seems likable enough. I like, I like Alan Scott a lot more than Hal. Well. You would fall in very fondly with Luke Jack and Eddie, then. And Kyle is in that category, he says. Yet more fun as a lantern than Hal. I didn't pick up the GL book until I saw the cover with Jade and a towel on it, and, well, I think that'd be a reason to buy it anyway, and he continues, and GL about to fight Obsidian. I was a fan of those characters, too. I even bought Infinity Inc. way back when. I was hoping that would turn into a return for an Infinity Inc., but I had no idea of the stuff that they had done to Braveway Jr., another of my favorite characters. Yeah, I know, I'm the only fan of that character. Well, I'm certain there's others out there. I know Scott Gardner's not a fan of him, but Scott Gardner, well, he has particular taste. Let's leave it at that. Anyway, based on these two there, I had to buy the comic art, was good, etc., etc., so I got into Green Lantern for a bit, and even liked it when Kyle made her part of the new core that he was remaking. I dropped off a bit after that on GL, but Kyle was cool enough that he was even good in the JLA comic. I was just... I'm sorry, it was just that I had other comics I wanted to get at the time, so sadly Kyle's book fell to the wayside. The Sunfire mask wasn't helping either. Oh, Kyle's mask was... of the 90s. Okay, yeah, I could see how... The mask might throw some people off. The rest of his comic was cool, he says. I just never got into Kyle. I've gotten back into Green Arrow when I got into college, so GL got dropped. I was taking archery and reminded how much I liked, be, liked the Longbow Hunter as a kid, so I picked this up. But I did go and find some Kyle back issues later. I never got into Kyle because I'd grown up by the time he showed up, so I had, so I, I had no, oh yeah, I remember him as a kid. Though I like Kyle a lot, a lot more than Hal, other than his toy, I never liked Hal. I know this book was based on Paul Newman. Uh, yeah, I remember Hal was kind of supposed to be modeled after Paul Newman in his original run where Gil Kane was drawing him, so yeah, I'd buy that. But I just never found anything to like about Hal, so I never picked up GL save for uh, a core issue that would have Guy in it. Thus why I didn't pick up GL until I saw Jade and Obsidian on it. Ah, to the current show, he says. The two comics you covered sounded cool. The Amalgam comic sounded great. And yeah, the Amalgam comic with Iron Lantern was brilliant. Busiak was brilliant at knowing Silver Age continuity and making it fit into modern comics. So I'm sure that comic was great. 
As for Amalgam, I only bought Am the Amazon one with Daredevil and Catwoman. Daredevil and Catwoman? Wow. And the JLX one at no Doom Force. <laughs> I'm certain Professor Allen is probably searching that out in the quarter bins. As well as Bruce Wayne, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which work pretty well together. Still, from your coverage, it sounded like it worked pretty well together. And that it did, Zeb. That it did. It was a great read. Go, go search it out. As for the GL book, he says, the art looks good. I'm thinking, okay, the artist did a bunch of thumbnails and then, do small, did, then did smaller drawings of this cover and other possible covers. Was this the pose that they went with? I'm not really certain which one you're talking about, but could be. Then it got redrawn at the full size, sent to an inker and an editor, and said, let's go with this. Still, he did a great figure work, and the expressions are nice. The story sounds pretty cool. I'm glad that Guy was in this issue, and it sounds like he did some cool stuff in the issue. The positioning of the pose may be, need a bit more spacing, the way Alan Scott is pretty cool Green Lantern. I will have to pick up the Earth 2 stuff at some point. I like that how he's been handled as a character. He was in great in Infinity Inc., and one of the changes in the new 52 that haven't bugged me. You know, I, I commented on this a while back, and initially I was kind of irked with the idea of Alan Scott being uh, brought forth as a gay character, but now I know what's going on with him and uh, James Robinson's reasonings behind it. I'm perfectly okay with it, and I think I've stated that in a couple episodes before. Seb continues, he could really use a new costume, but I guess it's the classic one, so they'll always stick with it. Oh, and the only time I liked Hal was when he was the Spectre, oddly enough. It was the one time his character made sense to me. Well, we'll be getting to Hal being the Spectre here in a couple of months. We'll have to look into that and see how you uh, enjoy that storyline. He finishes up saying, he, he even worked in Kevin Smith's Quiver storyline in Green Arrow. I look forward to hearing your next show, Zeb Oswald. Well, thanks, Zeb, for writing in. I really appreciate your... Uh, your opinions on the show. I'm sorry I didn't uh, catch, you know, unfortunately, I'm trying to remember what episodes you're talking about. I've got to assume it was around 105, issue 105 that you're talking about. And yeah, the the stuff in the Emerald Knight storyline was really good stuff. And I'm, I'm glad you liked my coverage of Iron Lantern, which was honestly one of the most fun books that I've had the opportunity to read in a long time. And I still can't thank Luke Giaconetti enough for getting me into that book. That was just so much fun. But after, of course, Mr. Oswald's letter, blah, we've got one from my good friend from the Great White North again, Scott Davis, wrote, wrote in. And he says in his title, Farewell to the Quarterlies, Hello to Jade. Well, hello, nurse is something I'd like to say hello to Jade with. But Scott writes, Hi, Sean. Happy St. Patrick's Day, which tells you when this was written. I heard that if you drink green green beer today, it counts as a vegetable. So, let's get out there and get started. I'm certain, uh, well, there's hops and barley and beer, so that's, that's vegetable. Yeah, there you go. Scott continues, here are some notes on the issues I've read recently. Green Lantern and Sentinel, Heart of Darkness. This was a great miniseries written by Ron and penciled by Pelletier. All three issues were excellent, Issue 1 had a nice recap of Alan Scott's history on pages 6-7, through seven, but I couldn't help thinking of the new 52 version of Alan Scott, because in the new version, his gay partner dies in the train wreck pictured on page 6. Wow, that's pretty tragic. I, I, I didn't know that about that. I've, that kind of that kind of works with this character. It gives him a motivation for being you know, a hero after finding the uh, ring and the lantern in that train wreck, so... 
Yeah, that's... Again, why did I not think that James Robinson would do this right? Something wrong with me. Scott continues on. Boy, times have changed. Then he says, Dr. Quinn on page 10 looks like Oprah Green Lantern from Green Lantern Quarterly number 6. Can you confirm this? I can't confirm or deny it, but it does look very familiar. Pelletier does a great job drawing the really creepy villain on pages 11 through 13. I agree with you that the reveal of the Starheart in issue 2 was pretty weak. I'm not really interested in the character, but overall I still enjoyed the whole story. And the cover of issue 3 with Jade is great. Mm-hmm. I think that was uh, my favorite of the issues, despite the fact of the costume being a bit ridiculous. But it's superhero physics. The costumes can fit over various curves and forms without falling off. Scott says, Pelletier draws an amazing Jade, especially on page 13 in Jade's version of Aresia's Hooker Jam outfit. Uh, it, it wasn't that bad. Does Kyle officially have the hottest girlfriends in DC history? Overall, I really enjoyed this miniseries. Uh, it's been said that uh, by a lot of people that Kyle has kind of annoyed them because he does seem to come into the DC universe as kind of this outsider, and then suddenly not only does he get Donna Troy Wonder Girl, but he gets Jade, and then, you know, going on through the series, he gets Sorenic. Uh You know, yeah, I guess you might say that Kyle's been pretty lucky with uh, the females of the DC universe. The next book is Power of Shazam 41, and he says, This is my introduction to Captain Marvel, and I have to admit it was a great, fun story. The cover is absolutely fantastic, probably because it was drawn by Jerry the Extraordinary Ordway. Always awesome. He says it's also funny that Hal and Kyle have to take off to find the bomb before it blows up, but we never actually get any resolution to that part of the story. I also have to thank J. David Weeder for bringing this to your attention because this was a fun issue. Yeah, I appreciate, uh, again, this is why I love having guest hosts on the show because they always tend to clue me in on things that I wouldn't have actually gone and sought out. I love that issue of Power Shazam, and I never would have known about it if it weren't for David Weeder. The Iron Lantern thing, never would have known about it except for Luke Jackanetti. So, and, and, Thomas DJ, he's brought me into that Chase miniseries, so I've got to go pick that up sometime soon, especially because it's been traded and everything. Finally, we've got to talk about Green Lantern Core Quarterly number 8. The first story about Abin Sur was pretty good. I can't believe a tree branch knocked out Alan Scott for most of the story. Yeah, immunity to wood, that, that does it. I agree with Thomas DJ that Abin is being a dick. The second story, written by Bo Smith about Probert saving the girl, is awesome. Yes, it is, because it's just Bo Smith writing a story about someone beating up a person who abuses women. That is what Bo Smith would do, and it's it's writing what you know. It was perfect. The leg snap, he says, on page 32 in the water fountain is brutal. And the story about Lobo and Jack T. Chance was very good, too. It's a great battle between two bad guys. It's too bad that Jack didn't make it in the other stories after this, and it was definitely a missed opportunity for sure. This concludes the quarterly issues, and overall I really enjoyed them. There were some hits and misses, more hits than misses. Uh, the Oprah Green Lantern one and the freaking Muppet Bug ones. Uh, those were horrible. But I really recommend them to Green Lantern fans. Sure, the Muppet Insects and Oprah Green Lantern's bad. Oh, well, I should have read ahead and known that you were agreeing with me. 
but the Nort and the Alan Scott stories, amongst others, make up for them. The Courtleys are like being compared to the Beatles. The Beatles took some chances with their music, and we wouldn't have all of their gems without having them put out a few duds in the meantime. Uh, I can go with that. I noticed the Tangent Comics Green Lantern in one of your advertisements, and even though you'd mentioned it probably isn't for you, I found out that two issues were written by James Robinson. Hmm. Since he wrote that awesome, crazy story in Green Lantern Corps Quarterly Number 7, I was wondering if he might reconsider and review these issues somewhere down the line. Thanks, Sean. Scott. Well, I will have to go search those out, and I'm certain there's some area down the line where I can probably slot in a couple of extra Green Lantern issues to put those in, so yeah, I'll see what I can do. Uh, it may not be you know within the next couple of months, but it's definitely, I'll, pu I'll put it on the radar. We'll just leave it at that. But I'm going to close up the email bag for now. I've got a couple more letters from not only uh, Scott again, but I've also got one from Michael Bradley that I'll have to be getting to. But right now, I need to get into my coverage of Green Lantern issue number 112. Green Lantern number 112 was cover dated May 1999 and released on March 10, 1999. This information comes from Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, which you can find at dcindexes.com. The cover price was $1.99 US and $3.25 in Canada, and the title was Standing Tall. The writer was Ron Mars, pencilers were Ron Lim and Daryl Banks, the inker was Terry Austin, colorist was Rob Schwager, letterers were Willie Schubert and Jack Morelli, assistant editor was Harvey Richards, and editor was Kevin Dooley. Having the most impeccable timing, Kyle Rayner, the Green Lantern, makes the scene just as his friends John Stewart, Moren, and Jenny Lynn Hayden are about to become the most recent victims of the Lantern Hunter fatality. Kyle handily subdues fatality and breaks the fourth wall for a moment before he's amorously attacked by Jenny. Kyle asks what was going on, and John relates the tale of the last issue, ending with Jenny's ring running out of juice. Kyle questions how Fatality escaped the belly of the beast, as well as how she's not supporting a stump where her right arm should be. Fatality responds by showing that her arm is now a kind of T-1000 analog and punching Kyle in the face, allowing her to escape with Jon Stewart in tow. Uncloaking her ship, Fatality beams herself and John up, John up and speeds off for parts unknown. Kyle plans to take off after her, but Jay says that they need to get Marin to a hospital. Marin says that she'll be fine and that Kyle needs to go after John, and Jenny says that she'll help, but she's out of power. Luckily, Kyle still has the fragment of his power battery, which he uses to form a new lantern, and after Jenny charges her ring, by using her father so, the two lanterns are off to hunt down the alien anarchist. Cut to Fatality's ship, where Jon Stewart wakes to witness the trophy room of Fatality's victims. The Ebon Elf says that his head will soon adorn the mantle as well, a burst of green energy rocks the ship. Flying a ring construct spaceship, Jenny and Kyle blast Fatality out of the sky, knocking her through the roller coaster in Coney Island and into the Atlantic. As the ship sinks below the sea, the two lanterns cut through the hull, with Jenny subduing Fatality and Kyle rescuing John. Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, breaks out between the brawling babes, with Fatality getting Jenny in a wrist lock, allowing her to remove the ring from Jenny's hand. While Kyle gets John to save safely to the surface, Jenny is blasted with a ring which Fatality is now wielding against the former Lantern. But before Fatality can skewer his sweet baboo, Kyle rides in all Aquaman style with a giant seahorse and blasts the baddie in the back. 
Ringing up a rebreather for Jenny, Kyle takes a moment to self-congratulate until he's wanged in the back of the head by the ring construct trident brandished by the underwater Emerald Cthulhu. On the surface, John decides not to keep bobbing there, while under the sea, Kyle and Fatality blast away at each other. Diving down, John grasps the arms of the Lantern Hunter, and tapping into the latent energy left to him by Parallax, he blasts Fatality, blowing her up real good. Crisis averted, the trio recap the events on shore, with John not being able to walk again, and Jenny's ring being lost with Fatality. Kyle mentions that the rings he created in the new core had vanished as well, which is really convenient, and he commends Jenny on being a good Green Lantern. Jenny says it was great being a hero, if even only for a while. But with Kyle back, the future is looking pretty bright. The story wraps with Naked McDouchebag, the guy from the last issue, sitting in a doctor's office telling his story of alien abduction. The Doctor is skeptical of the tale, even though aliens pretty much permeate the DC Universe, and not quite certain what to make of what's going on with his eyes. After leaving the flannel-wearing freak to check on another patient, McDouchebag suddenly finds that his body is able to, be, to spontaneously combust. But rather than this being the end of the story with him ending up as a pile of ashes, McDouchebag realizes that the flames don't hurt him, a condition that he describes as cool. This was so much better an issue than last time out, and mostly it's because of Ron Lim coming in as guest penciler. Until the final teaser where Banks and Austin deliver more of the same mediocre to poor art. But it is setting up the next big villain for Kyle, and it also gets rid of the other Green Lantern rings, making Kyle unique again. Although I am kind of disappointed that basically what happened in Emerald Knights at the end with Hal giving the ring is suddenly negated after, what, six more issues? So, yeah, that's kind of a disappointment. But I don't think the issue overall is too disappointing. In fact, I think it's incredibly good. Let's go take a look at it. Starting off with the cover, the cover looks really pretty good. The detail on it is very nice, especially on the construct, the sort of Chinese dragon construct that Kyle is bringing up. However, I do have to say this time out, rather than Jenny having the weird weed whacker, tree chimmer, gas powered spear thing, it's fatality that has it this time out. But it looks sciencey enough and futuristically enough or futuristic -y enough, so yeah, uh, it's artistic, I guess, in some way. But this is a much better cover and much better artwork for Banks and Austin than that we've seen in the book. So I'll give him credit here. Page one. As we look at this page, we get the images of the four characters from the last issue, and John, Marin, Jade, and Fatality. And I'm starting to wonder if maybe Banks is just doing really loose pencils and forcing Austin to do more heavy inks in to finish the artwork, because on this page there's such a dramatic difference from how all of these characters look from last issue to now. It really makes me believe that Banks, not Austin, might have been the person who was kind of slacking off on the artwork over the past couple of issues. And artwork continues to be awesome onto the next couple of pages where we've got a two-page splash of essentially what happens on the cover. Uh, it could be one of those things where it's 
mimicking the cover or looking at it from a different angle or just basically a few seconds later on the on the cover but it's a really good image and like i said ron Lim, i think works a lot better with uh terry austin so yeah the artwork has taken just a leap upward page four panel four this is kind of a well not really wonky but kind of interesting panel here it's kyle breaking the fourth wall basically it's kyle looking at essentially the reader in this circular panel here after he's captured fatality and saying hey isn't she supposed to be dead and it kind of looks from the image that he's saying that to the reader and the way that kyle's kyle's looking at us it does kind of have that sort of fourth wall breaking thing which i guess could take you a bit out of the book if you wanted to get particular about it but it also could essentially just be him talking to John and Marin and Jade, but it is kind of, you can take it either way, I guess. Then on page six, we kind of get an explanation of what happened to Fatality's arm. Obviously, she did lose it in that issue, I think it was 85, where Kyle finished her off on that alien planet, but it's got now a kind of T-1000 slash Aquaman mystical water arm thing going on. So, yeah, it's comic book science. And it's weird because it doesn't look like it's any different until she starts saying that it's a glowy T-1000 type arm. So, uh, I'll let it go. Comic book science. Page 8, panel 1. I thought it was kind of interesting that even though this is what almost 14 years prior to it, that the ship that Fatality is using looks a lot like the redesigned Klingon ship, the Klingon Bird of Prey ship from the new Star Trek movie, the Into Darkness one, the one that everyone, aside from me, apparently hates. So it is kind of interesting. Plus, it's also kind of neat that when Fatality asks the ship to transport them up, the energy effect that's going around her and the teleportation effect looks a lot like the Klingon transporters. It's got that sort of orange glow rather than the sort of light blue, white shimmering glow that you'd see in Next Generation Federation transporters. Page 10, panel 1. I like the fact that Jenny has decided to recharge her batter, recharge her ring with using the oath that her father uses, the classic Green Lantern oath. I mean, technically she doesn't have to use an oath at all, but the fact that she's using her father's oath is just, it's kind of a nice callback to her being a member of the Scott family. Then on page 12, we get Kyle just engaging in more property destruction. I mean, first it was that boat in the uh, New York City Harbor. Now he's crashed an alien ship in the Coney Island. I mean, what's next? The Twin Towers? Oh, oh. oops. Too soon? always too soon. Ugh. Page 13, Jenny wants to take on Fatality all by herself, and Kyle lets her, rather than having her rescue John. This wasn't the best of plans, as we see how the story kind of ended up. Page 14, this is a nice kind of silent page, where there's no dialogue going on anywhere that just shows the fight between Jenny and Fatality, and it's, it's a good fight underwater. The art works really good, and it kind of gives you 
a look at how Fatality was able to take the ring from Jenny as she smashes her arm against the hull of the ship and then takes the ring off of her. Page 16, pen 1. Anytime you can have a hero sort of referencing Aquaman by riding on a giant seahorse, I think that's a pretty cool image there. But then finally on page 20, it's back to normal as Cows destroyed the rings that he had in the new core. Jenny lost her ring due to the explosion with Fatality, and now John doesn't have his power anymore since he can't walk anymore because he's lost the power that Hal gave him during the uh, oh during the final night storyline. So it basically sets up again Kyle as the only Green Lantern, which was the direction that they were going at this time. So they took all their toys, played with them, and put them back in the sandboxes. You know the metaphor goes. So I I like that. But then we get the epilogue on page twenty two and. We get our introduction to our newest villain who's going to be taking on Green Lantern. Hopefully he won't be as lame as Ohm or Hair Metal Sonar or Hatchet or Dr. Polaris or... You get the picture. Hopefully this will be a good villain for Kyle to take on. But that was a pretty good story so far. I mean, the artwork was significantly better except for the past last couple of pages where... Banks and Austin were back, and the artwork just got muddy again. Like I said, Banks and Austin just haven't been doing it for me in these past couple of issues. But maybe one of the things that will be doing it for me in this issue will be some of the ads they've got here. Let's take a look at them. The front end side cover is for a new drink that's basically what's Coca-Cola's version of Gatorade. It's Powerade, and it's a giant fist with a bottle of Powerade coming out of a van with the caption on top saying welcome Arctic Shatter gold in a bottle here to save your game and I guess it's essentially flavored sugary fruit drink to supposedly help you when you've been dehydrated not like you could probably use water which would be a lot better for you then speaking of drinks that aren't good for you, there's a cutout of a bottle of Sprite with the caption, after flying back from planet TRMIC, nothing washes the bugs out of my teeth better than Sprite. And I guess you're supposed to cut this out and put it over the mouth of one of your favorite superheroes. Yeah, first of all, silly, silly ad. And second of all, don't cut up your comics, kids. It's not a good idea. Well, Maybe not a good idea, unless the next page is an advertisement for the Mod Squad. Yes, before the A-Team, before 21 Jump Street, before Hollywood had completely run out of original ideas to do for movies, we had the Mod Squad with Claire Danes, Omar Epps, and who else? Giovanni Ribisi as the characters of Link, Pete, and Julie. I remember vaguely the Mod Squad from when I was a kid. I don't remember this movie at all. I think this was kind of in the wake of the Charlie's Angels movie, and they were trying to sort of capture that, you know, movie, you know, big-budget movie that came from a TV show feel that Charlie's Angels did, and I think they just horribly, horribly failed. Well, uh, I just did a quick check of the IMDb, and I guess this came out before Charlie's Angels, so it predated it by about a year, and... Unfortunately, it 
pre-sucked it by about a year as well. I heard this movie was awful. Then, long before the Geico Gecko was all the rage, and by all the rage I mean just completely and totally annoying, there was another Gecko in video form that you could find. That was Gex, and I guess this is his third game, Gex 3 Deep Cover Gecko, which is a game for the PS3 done by uh, Eidos. I don't know, it's a James Bond Gecko driving a sporty convertible car with some amply chested woman lying on the uh, hood of it. So, yeah, there you go. I've never played Gex the game, and I don't know if, it, you know, if you could run over geckos in it, hey, that might be neat. A few more pages in, we get an advertisement for the Konami XXL Sports Series. This game, of course, is Blades of Steel 99, a hockey game. I don't think it will get any better than, like, NHL 94 for the Sega Genesis. Those are some of my favorite, favorite hockey games out there. But, yeah, I guess if you like playing hockey, it's on the Nintendo 64 and the PlayStation. So, there you go. Next page after that, you've got an advertisement for the Got Milk thing, where uh, this time out, instead of Sarah Michelle Gellar with a milk mustache, it's Tony Hawk upside down on a skateboard. And Tony Hawk, I guess, is always cool. You know, even though he's like, you know, 50 years old now. So, yeah. And then we get another ad for another Komami sports series game. This time it's in the zone. It's a basketball game, I guess. And the uh, featured player in the ad is uh, Glenn Rice of the Charlotte Hornets. Which is a team I don't think exists anymore. The Hornets are New Orleans now, so I don't know if Charlotte even has a team. Luke Giaconetti might have to fill me in on that. And even more sports activities here. Well, I guess you could call this sports. The advertisement says, Imagine the explosive power of a linebacker combined with the agility of a hockey defenseman. Just tougher. It's WSL Roller Jam. So, yes, rollerblade, not rollerblading, but a roller derby at games. And this is interesting because it's on Friday nights at 8 p.m. on TNN the Nashville network, which uh, eventually became Spike TV, if you guys remember that. You probably don't, but Spike TV used to be TNN. Just say it. And there's another one of those ads for Coca-Cola with the circle with the five points around it, with the lettering I-Y-D-K-Y-D-G. So it's, it's for Coca-Cola. It's one of these teaser things, except this time, rather than it being just the image, it's off the shadow of a corded phone receiver? I don't get it. Then on the next page is an advertisement for Joe Kubert's World of Cartooning Correspondence Courses. So I guess you could go to the Kubert School Corresponding? I, that doesn't make sense, but I guess, whatever. Then the back inside page is a really bland advertisement for Airwalk sneakers. It just has a sort of clip art image of a hand with little Wi-Fi signals coming out of the fingers saying, use your special power, whatever. And even, even more bland is the ad on the back. Luckily, it's not of a creepy kid, but it's for the Gap, and it's Technified, offering the Gap online store. So the internet is burgeoning, and... Uh, Online retailers are starting up. I guess we're 
entering into the 2000s and online is going to be the way to go. So we're seeing it here. But that does it for this comic. I'm going to take a quick break, play a couple more promos. And when we get back, as always, we're going to take a look at our second book this time out. And it is Green Lantern Annual number one with Eclipso. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. From there, you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Oh my god, I'm J. David Weeder. I haven't podcasted for 36 hours. I need to make a podcast. I have to do this. Maybe something Golden Age. I need a partner. Golden Age, podcast obsessed. Got it. John's John's Toilets and Toiletries. John, we need to make a new podcast. A new podcast? I haven't podcasted in a whole day. I need a new podcast. Well, I've been listening to a lot of David Bowie lately. Let's do Starman and his Golden Age adventures. Ooh, who who was the artist on Starman? What's that Jack Burnley? Yes, we should cover Jack Burnley's run on Adventure Comics and Starman. Okay, I have just the perfect guy because I know another guy who loves Jack Burnley. So let me call Charlie Neymar and see if we can get him on a three-way here. Hi, what's up? Charlie. Charlie. Ah. We need you to do a limited series podcast monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Are you available? Uh, monthly? Well, Starman, that's Jack Burnley, right? Oh, heck yes, I'm available. This podcast is Go. The Starman Observatory, covering Starman's Golden Age adventures. Monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. And we have returned to take a look at Green Lantern Annual number one. It was cover dated 1992 and released on June 2nd, 1992. This, of course, comes from the ever-awesome Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Go check it out, folks. The cover price was $2.50 US, $2.95 Canada, and a pound in the UK. The title was Diamond Rings. 
The writer was Gerard Jones, penciler was Andy Smith, inker John Beatty, letterer Bob Lappin, colorist Matt Hollingsworth, editor Kevin Dooley, and cover artist was Bill Willingham. Our story opens with Kilowog racing the new lantern recruits into a giant mountainside on Oa. The newbie lanterns smash into the mountain with a thunderous shaboom and all die. The end. <sighs> Sorry, that's not the end. We couldn't be so lucky with this story. The recruits, especially Boudica, question the reasoning behind this exercise, and Kilowog tells them to have a nice steaming cup of shut the fuck up. John Stewart happens by and shows his approval by golf clapping while in the lotus position. He asks Kilowog how the training is going, and the Shamrock Sergeant says that things are going well, except for the mushroom person Amanita, who obviously has been ingesting herself and senses cosmic peril for the Green Lanterns. On the moon, the Eclipso sits in his masturbatory chair. Wait, wait, tell me. Look at that pose and tell me that's not what he was getting ready to do. Seriously. <sighs> Anyhow, Eclipso wants Green Lantern's power ring because he's such a crap villain, so he sends out Starman to go hunt down Hal Jordan. No, not the original Ted Knight Starman. And no, not Jack Knight Starman. And no, not the blue one who eventually turned out to be gay but the Will Payton Starman, who I guess was Eclipsoed earlier in the event. Starman walks through the sleazier parts of New York City, where he gives an Eclipso gym to a homeless guy, who gives it to a hooker, who gives it to Eugene from The Walking Dead, who goes into a strip club and gives it to a dancer, who in turn stabs her lecherous manager with a hairbrush shiv. Somehow the dancer flips the ring to Guy Gardner, who is fresh off his beatdown from Blackhand from issue one of Guy Gardner Reborn, and of course... Guy becomes Eclipso too. Cut to an out-of-the-way hotel in California where Greenlander Hal Jordan is awakened by the screams of his off-again, on-again paramour, Carol Ferris. Seeing her face and chest covered with white fluid, seriously? Were they allowed to get away with that in a code-approved book? Whatever. Anyhow, rather than Hal bursting in on a wild bukkake party, he finds that Carol was just having a bad dream. Watching Wall her sitting on her dead father's lap while playing with his organ his pipe organ I mean actual pipe organ like from the Phantom of the Opera <sighs> then her dad turned into Star Sapphire then Carol turned into Star Sapphire then she sliced open Carol who turned into Cat Matui then Hal came in as Green Lantern and she gutted him as well only she did it as Carol Ferris and to top off the creepiness in the dream Carol admits that she loved all of it. Okay. Wisely, Hal backs slowly away from Carol and tries to ease her back to sleep. When she drifts off, he wonders why he's with this psycho when he could be out looking for the hot piece of tail, Aresia, who went and used her Green Lantern ring to age herself just enough to make Hal willing to boink her. But as Hal ponders his predicament, an eclipsoed Guy Gardner looks on. There's a quick recap of Bruce Gordon and crew investigating the Eclipso attack by the dancer in Times Square, then it's back to the hotel, where Guy drops an Eclipso gem, hoping that Hal will pick it up and become Eclipsoed. That doesn't happen, but Carol, who just decided to step out of her room, does, and it turns her into the Eclipse Star Sapphire. She breaks into Hal's room in hopes of possessing him as well, but as he was out getting an overpriced can of hotel diet soda, she decides to take off into the night. Hal returns to find his door smashed open and Carol flying off a sapphire. 
Ringing up his uniform, Hal heads after her, and Sapphire has decided to attack Ferris' aircraft to try and get Geo's attention, which it does as the two begin to tussle. Sapphire knocks Hal away, but before he can resume the fight, he's joined by Starman, who tells Hal that he's actually fighting Eclipso in Sapphire's form. Starman tells GL to distract Carol, breaking Eclipso's bond with her, but when Hal makes that attempt, Starman attacks Green Lantern from behind, knocking him out. Sapphire prepa- prepares to take the ring for Eclipso, but Bruce Gordon arrives just in time to zap her with the solar light gun, causing her to retreat. Starman follows her, and as Gordon and the team are monologuing, Eclipso and Guy Gardner attacks, but gets zapped back into normality by the solar gun, allowing him to get out of this awful annual crossover. Meanwhile, Sapphire and Starman are hovering over a Beverly Hills mansion, while Starman flies away to start another annual, and Sapphire gets attacked by the Green Lantern Corps. Hal eventually makes it there and proceeds to go all Ike Turner on Carol. Somehow, this caused Hal to become eclipsed as well, and now both he and Carol do a little fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights deserved, with the rest of the Corps. The GLs look like they're winning until Hal and Sapphire fire their energies at each other, causing an earth-shattering foom. Finding not a trace of the two, the Lanterns head their separate ways and try to recruit JLA members to help track the duo down. But after the Lanterns have departed, Eclipsed Hal and Carol emerge from the rubble and head out to find a place to hide for the night so that they might continue Eclipso's evil plans. In my experience with annuals, usually they're a mixed bag, and this is an example of one of the poorer ones. Much like the Green Lantern Corps quarterly, there could be a lot of hit and miss annuals, and this one is definitely a miss. Jones does an okay job with the story, and the art by Andy Smith is passable, but I could really give a tinker's cuss about Eclipso, uh, so this held no interest for me in the slightest. But I will uh, give you this. For further reference on this crossover, you can go check out From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, episodes 111 to 113, for more coverage of this entire saga. Thankfully, Jeffrey Taylor and Mike Bailey actually told you what was going on throughout all of the storyline because it crossed over into the Superman books pretty heavily. But it still had Eclipso in it. So, yeah, there was that. Yeah. This was not the best book I think I've read. Definitely not the worst. I still give that uh, title to issue 37, but this is up there, down there, whatever. 
but we'll go ahead and go through this. I don't really have that many notes. We'll start out with the cover. It's a nice cover by Bill Willingham, which depicts uh, Eclipso in the background looking on as Hal Jordan punches the living snot out of Carol Ferris. I mean, and the look on Hal's face, it's it's like he's enjoying it a bit too much. And Hal's not eclipsed at the time. You can't tell if Carol's eclipsed because, well, you're seeing it from her right side as she's getting punched and blood, you know, shoots out of her mouth as well. Very raging bull type thing. So way to go, Hal. Let's hear it for not spousal abuse, but I guess girlfriend abuse. Nice. Then we move on to page three, panel four, where Smith just does a really bad job of drawing Kilowog. First of all, his head really has no definition. It looks sort of just like a giant mound of orange clay, and his mouth is all wonky. I know he's supposed to have the sort of bulldog-type look, but what it looks like is he's just got four of those sort of lemmy-sized moles around the side of his mouth. It's just really bad. And the art doesn't improve very much more when you move on to page four, which I referred to in my synopsis as Eclipso's masturbatory chair. I mean, take a look at him in that. If if you have this, if you're fortunate enough to have this issue, take a look at him and the way his arm is positioned. It looks like he's ready to violently start pounding himself. It's, uh, uh don't want to think about it. Page 6, panel 2, is Starman Will Payton is walking around New York City for some reason, whatever. He comes across, obviously, what has to be the most stereotyped, thuggish, gay people around there. It's it's like the village people had really fallen on hard times and just decided to make a cameo in this book. It's It's just awful looking. And then on page 10, you think Guy Gardner coming into the book would help pick things up, but it really doesn't. Guy looks okay, but I think Smith is drawing him as the ultra-beefy Guy Gardner that you'd see later when uh, Bo Smith and Mitch Bird would be drawing him, but he just looks wonky and out of place here. But if you thought the image of Eclipso sitting on his chair was awkward. I dare you. And I posted this on my Facebook page. Page 11, panel 3, looks like Carol Ferris woke up from a horrible, horrible encounter with someone who splashed her with his DNA. I, I talked to this with a few of my friends on Facebook and showed them the image and Yes, they they thought the same thing. And I think it's I'm well I'm certain it's supposed to be her waking from a nightmare and that being sweat, but with her being silhouetted in green, the splotches look white and it just looks bad. I don't know how this was able to make it into the book. But then the writing gets all creepy as Carol describes her dream of becoming Star Sapphire and sitting on her father's lap, playing his organ, which... Then turning into Star Sapphire herself, and then turning back into Carol, then turning into 
then slicing open Cat Matui, and then slicing open Hal. It's like, this is not the kind of thing you want to hear from someone that you're in relationship with, because that pretty much means you're going to end up with your head in a box out in the middle of the desert somewhere, or with Brad Pitt screaming about what's in the box very soon. After that, I'm really stretching for notes, so... I decided to do this, since we haven't done it in a while, on page 36. While Gordon and his crew were flying around in a helicopter, I thought it was time to put in an obligatory Blue Thunder reference. Yeah, it's not as cool as Airwolf, but Andy and Michael, or not Andy and Michael, Andy and Steven actually have the copyright on that, so I've got to go do my own thing. Blue Thunder, yeah. It's probably the only enjoyable thing that you'll find in this game. Then on page that no, I'm sorry, on page 37, the way that they defeat Eclipso is by shooting him with light guns. Solar light guns. Eclipso is one of the lamest villains I think I've ever encountered. And I've run through Ohm, Hair Metal Sonar, and Hatchet. Eclipso, you suck. (sighs) Moving on then to page 39. uh, The layout of this page is just really bad. On the first panel, we see Guy leaping at our heroes, Gordon and his crew. Then on the second panel, I guess, I don't know his name is. I don't know whether it's Gordon himself. I thought Gordon was a blonde guy. But the other guy is with him, whips around and threatens to shoot Guy with the ray gun. And rather than shooting him in mid-flight, the third panel has Guy stop, stand there, and give a Shakespearean monologue with his hand stretched out like he's Macbeth, or not Macbeth, but he's Hamlet. It's just, it's just awful. I, I want to finish this up. In fact, I think I only have one final note on page 45, where Hal is just punching the crap out of Star Sapphire. It's not like he's eclipsed. You don't see half of his face sort of that shaded blue thing until later. You have to think that initially when Hal is doing this, he hasn't touched a gem. He's just doing this because he's Ike Turner at the moment. It's bad. Granted, I'm thinking a lot of the annuals would be a lot better. But I think these first two that we're going to get coming out are not going to be the most fun. And why do I say the first two aren't going to be that much fun? Well, because next time out, we're going to be covering Annual 2. And instead of being Eclipse of the Darkness Within, it's it's the Bloodlines crossover annual. Annual number two, Green Lantern, where Hal Jordan meets up with the awesome Bloodlines character, Nightblade. A kid who is able to regrow his limbs because he was bitten by a weird alien who sucked out his spinal fluid. Uh, It doesn't make sense at all. Plus, Kyle meets up with one of his new villains, which actually is kind of a cool one, in issue 113 of Green Lantern. Remember Douchey McNaked, or Naked McDouchebag? I can't remember what I called him. Well, we finally get a name for him, and we finally get a code name for him as he decides to be a flamethrowing villain called Effigy. 
get it because he's burning in effigy. It's actually a good character, and it should be a good story. Much better than annual number one, hopefully. But we'll be checking all that out and more, including your emails, when we come back next time for another episode of Just One of the Guys. So I hope you guys will see me in one week. I will be ready to talk to you then. And until then, have a good weekend, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Eagle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know it. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the new rule, too. And you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there. As it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening. And come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods. A Greenland podcast. The opening music for today's show was Pink Floyd's song Brain Damage and Eclipse off their seminal album Dark Side of the Moon. If you'd like to buy this song or buy this album, there's a number of places where you could go buy it, but the best one you could possibly go to would be the Amazon.com website. And the best way to get to Amazon.com to buy this song would be to go through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Every time you hit the link at 2TrueFreaks.com, you'll be directed to Amazon, where you can buy the song by Pink Floyd, buy the album, or if you're really wanting to try and waste some time, you can buy the Blu-ray of The Wizard of Oz and try to sync the album up with it. I don't know if it works, but, you know, many people have tried. And you can do all of this for incredibly low prices. But always make sure that you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com when you make your purchase, because every time you do, a little bit of money from your purchase goes back to 2TrueFreaks. It won't cost you anything in your purchase, but it does help out the 2TrueFreaks website. So anytime, again, that you're wanting to shop at Amazon.com and have a desire to sync up movies and completely random songs with it, then use the Amazon link at 2TrueFreaks.com.